Welcome to The Remarkables, Grant Thornton's podcast that seeks to uncover stories about remarkable people doing incredible things for their community, bettering the world for future generations and inspiring others to do the same. I'm Rebecca Archer and today I'm joined by polar explorers and doctors Gareth Andrew and Richard Stevenson from The Last Great First, Antarctica 2023, for the second time on the show. They're back from their unsupported ski crossing of Antarctica and we're excited to hear about their incredible adventure on the ice. Welcome back, Gareth and Richard. Thanks very much. Hi, Rebecca. Uh, thanks for having us back on. Congratulations. 1,404 kilometres and 66 days. How are you both feeling mentally and physically? Personally, we've we've had a few weeks now where we've been off the ice and it's been a really nice time to re-energise, to eat some good food and catch up on some sleep and spend some really quality family time. So I'm feeling pretty much back to normal after being completely physically and mentally exhausted by the end of the expedition. Yeah, I'm very much the same, really. I think it... You know, it's, it's interesting when we finished the expedition, we were both what would be considered by polar expedition terms in, in fairly good nick. You know, we'd survive, survive the rigors of it reasonably well. But certainly I found that once we were off the ice and back into civilization, this sort of profound exhaustion was sort of kicked in. And I found it took me several weeks to just really start to not feel like I just wanted to rest and sleep the whole time. And, uh, and I think there was quite a deficit in, in, in energy that uh, when you're out there, and the adrenaline is going and you've got this huge drive behind you and you've got this massive, massive goal ahead of you. You just keep on going. But, you know, I certainly noticed when I first got back, it took me quite a while to, to get back to normal. But uh, yeah, I was certainly there now. And I understand that weather conditions proved to be a bit challenging, causing the journey to end early. What happened there exactly? We were attempting to, you know, to go further than anybody else in history, 2,000 kilometres across Antarctica. So right from the start, the challenge was uh, was epic. And then when we were in Punta Arenas, so our launch pad uh, into Antarctica, we weren't able to get into Antarctica for a full seven days because of storms and because they needed to clear uh, the snow off the runway for us to land in Antarctica. Um, and that really, that seven days really, really hurt us. So the challenge was to go 2,000 kilometres in 73 days. But then when you turn that 73 days into 66 days, uh, the challenge just gets even harder. And when I say 66 days, what that means is basically getting into Antarctica as soon as you can in that expedition season, so the summer season, getting in as soon as you can, and then leaving on the very last plane. So on at the end of day 66, everyone ships out of Antarctica, apart from the, uh, the government scientists and the government bases. So all the search and rescue teams and all the infrastructure for expeditions get shipped out of Antarctica. And so when we were faced with starting on the edge of Antarctica, or on the edge of Birkenau Island, with 66 days to cover this distance, it really posed a massive challenge. And we needed everything to go right in terms of conditions and terrain and uh, it just didn't fall into place for us and we can talk a little bit about why that is as we go. I think that's a really important point you know we we knew you know to be honest when we were planning the adventure we knew that it was something that was right at the edge of what's possible but it also means you've got to have a bit of luck on your side and you need everything to go right. The previous longest unsupported polar ski journey is around 1,700 plus kilometers and they took well over 73 days to do that so we were already being very very ambitious in what we planned to do we knew it was possible we thought it was possible but we always knew it needed to go right and we needed to have a bit of luck on your side and you know when you plan you know i mean for me the definition of adventure is always it's got to be that 
you don't know what's going to happen, you know. And particularly, as Gareth says, with that delay getting into Antarctica at the start, it made a challenge that was already right on the edge of what's possible that bit more difficult. And then we still needed huge amounts of luck, probably more than we, we could realistically expect in terms of the conditions and the actual journey itself. And, and as it turned out, that wasn't to be either. We were actually quite unlucky in some of the conditions that we faced. So in the light of those things, we had to you know, modify our goals and we're certainly incredibly proud to have achieved something that's, uh, you know, that's really quite amazing and was an incredible experience, um, you know, in, in, in spite of those challenges. And when you did arrive at the South Pole, I'm dying to hear what that felt like. Was it a sense of relief or excitement? Uh, what went through your mind? Who did you tell first that you actually had made it? And what was the first thing that you did when you got there? I think it was a feeling of immense relief, the feeling of a of a journey that we we had been planning for you know 10 years coming to an end and it was very emotional actually more emotional than i was expecting when we were about 10 kilometers away from the armandson scott south pole station we came across some tire tracks so they drive these big uh, big research vehicles around the south pole um, and they have these big tracks on them and we, and we saw these tracks and it was the first sign of human activity that we'd seen in 66 days and then on the very on the far horizon we could just see the outline of uh, of some buildings and um it was very emotional actually and then when we got there the first thing that we wanted to do was you know call our families and tell them that we were there and we were safe and and that we'd made it yeah it was a, it was a strange day i think looking back on it that kind of slow build up knowing that you're I don't, certainly for me there was always this sense, you know, what if something goes wrong at the last minute? What if we have one final bit of crucial equipment that breaks? What if, you know, one of us suddenly just does something catastrophic and falls and twists an ankle or breaks an ankle or something just right at the last minute? But once you're getting, as Gareth says, within sort of 10 kilometers of the pole, there's those tracks. You can start to see just this silvery tint on the horizon of some of the buildings and some of the scientific big some load of big radar stations and things there start to pop their heads above the horizon. Suddenly you think, do you know what? I think we're actually going to do it. You know, I think we're actually going to pull this off and you get that kind of huge sense of relief. And then in Antarctica, you can see for enormous distances because the air is so clear. So you can see where you're going. Uh, it doesn't appear to be getting much closer for hours and hours as you cover these last few distances. And then I remember there's a slight difference at the South Pole between the ceremonial pole that everybody recognizes, which is that kind of barber's pole with the, the, the reflective globe on top and the actual, and, and that stays where it is. But of course, the South Pole is over kilometers and kilometers of ice, which are, are moving. So we went straight past the, the ceremonial pole, moved on, totally ignoring it, just determined to cover those last few hundred meters until we finally got to this sort of quite underwhelming stick in the ground that is the true, true South Pole. And I think actually, I think the first thing that we did was give each other a bit of a hug. To be honest, I'll be honest with you, I think we both had a little bit of a cry. It was a pretty emotional moment and the culmination of our lifetime of dreams and three years of very, very intense hard work and 66 days of extreme physical effort and it all kind of came boiling to the surface. I can only imagine. That would have been incredible. I bet it's something you'll never forget as long as you live. Now, I'm sure we've all got a fairly you know, similar picture of what the landscape is like in Antarctica. Lots of ice, lots of snow. But was there anything else that really stood out to you? Anything that you could describe to us that we might find surprising? The landscape actually was quite variable. We started on the very coast. So from our start point, we were looking out across the Weddell Sea and, uh, and the icebergs of the Weddell Sea. And then we spent three weeks on a 
pretty much a barren plateau across across Birkner Island. But then we got down onto the Ronnie Filchner Ice Shelf as we crossed towards the you know the mainland continent of Antarctica. And the Ronnie Ice Shelf sort of it goes in very gentle, gentle waves. And for and as Rich said, you can see for hundreds of kilometers uh, in Antarctica. And with a number of days to go before reaching the mainland, we could see the the mountains in the distance, and they just and they just got closer and closer. And and for a good part of the expedition we were we were traveling through the Pensacola mountains past the forestal range and, and the Neptune range and they're incredibly beautiful you know the crux of the trip was going up through the Wujek ridge um, which is a very very steep ridge that forms essentially a gateway to to the Antarctic plateau and, and, and the South Pole so as we made our way up the ridge and through the mountains it was incredibly beautiful and we had some great clear days that we could enjoy that but once you're out onto the Antarctic plateau itself, we just basically saw for weeks and weeks on end and hundreds and hundreds of kilometers, just fields of sastrugi, uh, which are these very sharp ice waves that make traveling very, very difficult. And so although quite beautiful, it's actually just mentally soul destroying, know, knowing that you have to cover these, uh, cover such great great distances in, in such difficult terrain. You know, I think these sastrugi, uh, it's quite difficult to describe to people. And certainly there's, there's some quite good photos up on our website of them. And they, they were absolutely the dominant sort of terrain feature of the expedition. We, we knew that the route that we would do would be relatively prone to sastrugi. As Gareth says, these, these ice ridges that form they change over a scale of months or years and are these very hard ridges of, of snow and ice and they can be anything from a few centimeters tall up to you know certain the largest we saw was, would be the size of a, a, a small house there's a sort of what you call a circumpolar band of them um, at around the kind of 86 to 88 degrees south so they're a you know, well-known phenomena where people often encounter them in antarctica and we knew that because of the topographic conditions on our route, we would probably have at least 200 kilometers of sastrugi. But as it turned out, it had been a very heavy snowfall winter with some really extreme winds. And actually, that was why we were slow getting into Antarctica in the first place, because of the sheer volume of snow that was deposited over the winter uh, at the Union Glacier camp. Uh, that was our stepping stone on into the, the start of the expedition. And it took them a week to clear snow off the runway so our plane could get in. That same snow had meant that they'd built up you know, abnormal amounts of sastrugi throughout Antarctica and particularly on the route that we were on. So instead of 200 kilometers of sastrugi, we had 400 kilometers of sastrugi, absolutely solid. And when I say solid, I mean, for the vast majority of those 400 kilometers, there was no point at which there was even a ski's width of flat ground. For the vast majority of that time, your skis were tilting on ridges of ice you know, you'd maybe have your, your skis balancing over three or four different ridges. Your sled would be teetering on a bunch of other ridges or perhaps down in a trough between ridges behind you. And as you can imagine, the sleds, which we started off with, were 165 kilograms split between two sleds. We consolidated those down to a single sled as we passed through the Sustrugi fields to give us a little bit of um, a bit of mobility and a bit of ability to maneuver as much as you can. But there were still you know, 100 plus kilo sleds. So every couple of steps, you would have to be leaning as much as you possibly could forwards, putting maximal effort in and pressure through your legs to get your sled to come up over a ridge. When it would drop down onto the uh, into the trough behind that, you who'd be balancing on a couple of other ridges at the front would suddenly jerk forwards and drop down into the trough and perhaps hit another ridge in front of you. So it's an incredibly awkward 
difficult way of traveling this sort of alternating between maximum maximal effort and then suddenly jerking forwards and crashing into something else behind you and so doing that non-stop day after day for 400 kilometers was, in, was incredibly challenging and you could stand on these larger sastrugi and you could just see in front of you you could see for you know until the curve of the horizon took the world away from you you could just see more and more and more sastrugi panning out in front of you and that was psychologically as much as anything difficult to deal with because because you could just see what you're in for for the rest of the day or the next day and probably for as it turned out several weeks ahead of you just more and more sastrugi the one last thing on that is you know then we had days in in this sastrugi where we couldn't see anything at all so it was just like so we had whiteout days where you ski through you know blizzarding snow and and a cloud essentially so you can't discern the horizon you don't know where the sky and the snow meet and you don't essentially know what's under your feet so you sort of battle on through this stuff going incredibly slowly because you can fall as rich was saying you can fall off the edge of these things and either break a piece of critical equipment like your ski or sled which would be expedition ending or you could fall and easily break a leg. So the conditions were extremely challenging. And when you think about, you know, what you can see, there were, you know, there were many days where where we could we could just see each other basically, and that's it. And if you were the first, if you're the person up front, you could see absolutely nothing at all. And, and often you'd only know where a sastrugi was because your skis would hit it out in front of you, or you'd be til- you'd be teetering on the top of one and you'd fall off the other side of it. Whereas if you were behind, the only thing in this sort of just white blank canvas of the world ahead of you would be the person in front of you. And for me, I became incredibly familiar with the uh, the Grant Thornton logo, which was on the back of Gareth's rearmost sled. So I spent of that, and we used to take it in turns. So we did exactly half leading and half following through the whole expedition. So of those 1,400 kilometers, I, I spent 700 of those kilometers staring at the Grant Thornton logo. So I became extremely fond of it because it meant Gareth was in front doing all the hard work. What a great way to advertise the organization too. <laughs> I wonder, it's sounding incredibly treacherous and difficult. And the fact that your visibility would have been sort of so reduced on certain days, did you actually get a chance to spot any penguins or other animals? I mean, you get a sense of Antarctica, I guess, from documentaries as being this vast, very clear vista with little black dotted penguins waddling in the distance. But is that really just not the case? We So we started, as I said, right on the coast and in amongst a, an emperor penguin colony. So we were incredibly privileged just to, to wander around with the penguins for a, for a few hours before we started our expedition. And they're, and they're just incredible, incredible birds. And they have no fear of humans. They just kind of wander around and kind of come up and say hello and then wander off back in the direction of either the colony or, or the sea. And then after that, once you get away from the coast, Antarctica is the world's largest desert. There's nothing, there's, it, can't, it can't sustain any life. Uh, once you get away from the coastline. So, you know, for the vast majority of the expedition, we didn't see any other living things apart from ourselves. Apart from when we got about 300 kilometres away from the coast, just as we were coming down off Berkner Island, a snow petrel turned up. So snow petrels are about the size of a, a seagull. They're perfectly, perfectly snow white with black bills and black feet. And it kind of flitted out, out over the horizon and, and came and, and flew around us for a, 
for a few minutes and sat in the snow and uh, we, we gave it some crumbs to eat and things. And I think it was a surprise to see us as, as we were it. And then once after that, we didn't see we didn't see another living thing until we got to the South Pole. Even the ranges of mountains that we traversed, particularly as we went up through the Woojack Ridge that, that Gareth mentioned before, we were right next to exposed rock there and there's nothing on it. It's not even lichen, there's no soil, there's nothing. It's just the sort of rock that's just kind of crumbling you know, to bits over eons under the assault of the of, of the cold and the wind. And there's not even lichen on, on the rocks there because uh, the environment is just so incredibly dry. Can you tell us a bit about the process of collecting climate data, which is, of course, one of the things that uh, was instrumental about this trip? Yeah, like it's, it was a really interesting part of the trip. And for us, it was something that was really important for us to do. You know, we're both you know, passionate climate advocates and we both very much feel that climate change is the is the greatest existential threat to, to all of us and, and and Antarctica being this incredibly pristine incredibly remote environment it's also very fragile and it really is acts as a kind of barometer of the world of the global climate both in terms of where you see some of the changes caused by warming but also providing some of really important information and, and data and so for us it was really important if we were going to go to Antarctica and experience this incredible wilderness which is an enormous privilege it was important for us to give back to that kind of scientific community and feel that we were doing something that also aided both in the in global fight against climate change but also in our sort of understanding of Antarctica so we were working with some scientists at the University of Hobart who worked with the Australian Antarctic Division and we started conversations with them quite early about what what could we contribute you know what are, what are two guys um, who are very limited in what equipment we could carry because you know weight obviously is incredibly important. Time is really difficult. We can't be spending lots of time making scientific measurements. You know, was there really anything that we could add? But we were really pleasantly surprised that the scientists were, were genuinely excited about what we could provide to them because so much of the stuff or the data that's gathered in and on Antarctica is either done at specific scientific research stations, which only you know cover tiny areas of what's a vast continent, or they're done through remote sensing and you know satellites ca- collect a lot of data. But a lot of the time there, they're actually using modeling to collect the actual numbers and the actual data. And that all that modeling needs calibration to make sure that it's accurate. And there's nothing quite like actual boots on the ground, field measurements at the level of the ice to help calibrate those models. And so that's something really unique that we could contribute to that scientific data set. So throughout the whole expedition, what we tried to do was to collect the most beneficial amounts of data and science, whilst also balancing that with the need that we had to have as light a sled as possible to move as efficiently as possible. And so we we had very specially select instruments with us that were essentially monitoring certain parameters continuously through the expedition. So we had devices specifically for monitoring temperature. We had devices specifically for monitoring barometric pressure and devices that measured a, a larger suite of, uh, of climatic data. And, and and they were measuring, they were taking, I think, the, the sort of resolution of the data on some of those devices was as, as often as every 10 minutes for the entire expedition. So we collected well over 150,000 single data points of information through that expedition that is being you know essentially every 10 minutes for multiple parameters for all 166 days of the expedition which is you know it's really quite amazing and it's fantastic that we could get hold of the technology to enable us to do that so all of that information has now been downloaded into some 
pretty epic looking spreadsheets and and that's all gone off to the scientists at the uh, the University of Hobart and and hopefully um, that'll provide them with some genuinely useful data to help inform their their knowledge and their modeling. You have talked about the challenges of traversing the landscape there and the Sestrugi and how treacherous that was to try and cross. I'm sure there must have been some very, very tough moments for both of you. Was there anything in particular that stood out that you would like to talk about and what gave you the drive to keep on going? For me, Christmas Day was was the hardest day. Um, It stands out because it was our third day in the Sustrugi. We were at about 80, around 84 south uh, so we still had a long way to go to the South Pole, well over you know 600 kilometres to go to the South Pole. And like I said, we were, we were our third day in the Sestrugi and it took us 10 hours to to do our daily distance of, of 22 kilometres, which is, you know, at least two hours longer than it normally, it would normally take us. It was the first day that we were really all we could see for as far as the horizon was was Sestrugi. And I just remember sitting in the tent, feeling completely physically exhausted and thinking it was almost the realisation that if this continues all the way to 88 South or all the way to the South Pole, in fact, 600 kilometres away, the chances of us making the crossing are, are almost gone at that point. And it was then that it was probably my lowest point because, you know, dealing with the the disappointment of potentially not making the crossing, but then also just having to pick yourself up again and realizing that, you know, just getting to the South Pole is going to be a massive achievement in the in these conditions. And that's not guaranteed. And then also realizing that in this kind of terrain, you're on your own. They can't they can't land a plane anywhere close to you because you can't land a plane with skis on the bottom of it in the Sestrugi terrain. So there was a feeling of of Massive isolation and, you know, and then the feeling that it was all down to us to get ourselves out of there. Yeah, it was a big day for both of us, I think. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, I think. You know, I certainly found the, the early stages of the expedition quite challenging psychologically, just purely because of the great stretches of time and distance that stood between us and our goal and just realizing quite how long it was going to be until we could see sort of family and our loved ones again that that was quite difficult but you know I, I would agree with Gareth I think you know Christmas day it was supposed to be a day of celebration we'd taken some treats with us we had a bit of extra chocolate stuff we had a bit of whiskey for us to have I think um, we even had some happy Christmas balloons and things with us but actually it was the level of physical exhaustion by the time we got the tent up in the evening and that realization, because we'd hit these Sestrugi, you know, essentially 200 kilometers earlier than we were expecting to hit them, meaning that we probably knew we were in for double the length of time that we would be in the Sestrugi than we were expecting, creating that dual sense that, you know, essentially at that point, the crossing was nigh on impossible, but also that actually just reaching the South Pole might not happen. You know, this is huge scope for just not being able to physically cover the distance that was required because it was still pretty significant. But also the the scope for stuff going wrong, you know, the, the hammering that our gear was taking in those Sestrugi, you know, just after three days, just that smashing of your harness, the smashing of your sleds, the smashing of your skis and, you know, things that are relatively delicate, like ski bindings, are getting an absolute hammering. Just wondering if all of that stuff's going to survive. And actually, you know, if we're 200 kilometers into the Sestrugi, 
and we break some critical piece of equipment, well, we're still probably 200 kilometers from rescue as well. And we were going to have to try and get ourselves out of that, even to a point where we could be safely rescued, never mind succeeding our goals. You know, all of that really came to a head on Christmas Day with all of the, the missing your family, feeling away from home, our kids, knowing that our kids would be at home opening their Christmas presents and getting really excited. And and th there was us sitting in our tent, sort of absolutely broken and exhausted. It was, I, I would agree with Gareth. I think that was, a, that was a really challenging low point. I certainly don't think you'll take any Christmas days with family for granted in the future after that experience. Um, Richard, I need to ask you, did you finally buy a new spoon? In all seriousness, how do you deal with things not going to plan, like your only spoon breaking? You know, I, I think of all of the stuff that I've had conversations with about everybody who had been following us on our trip, including my family, the spoon is the thing that everybody remembers. And uh, I got a message from my partner, Gareth's sister, you know, on the day via the satellite messaging system. And she was like, Rich, what are you doing? How did you not take a metal spoon with you? And it's, um, you know, it was, it was in some ways it was kind of funny because in all honesty, it was it was a right pain not having a working spoon for oh, I don't know I think it was about two thirds of the trip in the end because you take these things for granted and you think well actually you know how am I genuinely going to get the food into my mouth if I can't rig up some form of temporary temporary spoon and we were thinking we'd probably end up having to use the uh, the snow pegs that are anchoring our tent down because at least they're kind of shovel shaped and you can shovel food into your mouth with one of those but the idea of doing that for you know forty odd days was was a little bit bit miserable but you know as it turned out we could kind of rig something together and but I guess it's a bit of a metaphor for how you have to survive and, and cope out of there you, you know you've just got to repair things you've got to mend things you've got to improvise and that's actually one of the really fun things about polar exploring is that sense I think it's something that Gareth and I both enjoy is that sense that you have to part of surviving in the wilderness is having to cope use your skills your knowledge your your initiative to to, to fix and repair stuff but there's only so much of that you can do and and certainly it also shows how incredibly important every single detail of your equipment is on an expedition into such an isolated part of the world. And I'll be honest, I just didn't even think about my spoon. It's the same spoon that I've been using for 10 years on all the trips I've done. It's been to the magnetic North Pole. It's come across Iceland with me. It's been up countless mountains and, and, and up rivers in New Zealand and all sorts of stuff. And it's been totally fine. So I just stuck it in my bag. didn't think any more, anything more of it. Of course, in hindsight, I think it's something I probably should have realized how important it was. So, you know, from, from my perspective, it just goes to show how much, how much detail, and how careful you have to be with your planning. In terms of other bits of equipment, we, we ended up skating pretty close to the line with our ski bindings as well. You know, we had the, the hammering that they got in the Sestrugi meant that, well, I, unfortunately, none of this I can blame on Gareth, I managed to break three of our four spare sets of ski bindings. And so if we'd broken anything else, we would have been in real trouble and probably not been able to finish the expedition. But we managed to, with a bit of improvisation, managed to get our fairly significantly injured ski bindings limping on and, and managed to make it to the South Pole. But it was a pretty near run thing. And I think that's a testament to how long we're out there, the, the, the toughness of the conditions and how important it is to make sure you've got exactly the right equipment with you when you start. What about illnesses and injuries? I mean, you can improvise, you know, not being able to use your favourite loyal, trusty plastic spoon, but it's not always as easy to uh, try to get around injuries and, and sickness while you're on a trek like this. Anything like that come up for you? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that um, us both being doctors helped massively in terms of us getting to the South Pole. 
But you've got to think we're we're out there for 66 days and common things happen. You're going to get blisters. You're going to get musculoskeletal injuries. You're probably going to need, you know, antibiotics at some point. And and it's how much of all these things you take with you. So you're most likely to get blisters on the first couple of days of the trip because sleds are the the heaviest. You're doing a new movement. We did a whole ton of training, but... You know, you can only train for dragging a heavy sled through snow once you get into some snow. And our last time was up in Svalbard and then you're into it in Antarctica. So we both got blisters quite early on. And, you know, the thing with blisters is, you know, making sure that they don't get infected, basically, because that's the thing that's going to pose you most issues, you know, skin infections and those sorts of things. But you've only got a limited amount of supplies. So you can't be dressing and changing these blisters or or even your musculoskeletal uh, injuries with your strapping tape, you can't be changing them every day because you just don't have enough supplies. So a lot of what we were doing was just trying to stretch our supplies out for the amount of time that that we we were out there. But I think the advantage that we had was that we were able to spot things early get on top of them and sort them out before they became real problems. So things like blisters and things like, you know, just very mild chest infections, and they can escalate into expedition ending medical conditions very quickly. And by spotting them early and uh, and helping each other through them, I think it, I think it really helped. And there's this phenomenon that you only really get in Antarctica called polar thigh. And the pathology is not really well understood, but essentially it's a cold injury to the skin on the, on most commonly on your thighs where the skin gets very very cold and then in in combination with the friction of your clothing so when you're trekking for hours and hours and hours a day um, essentially the skin starts to break down it starts off as a very itchy red spots and then breaks down into into ulcers essentially and can be very very bad and both of us had the had the startings of of polar thigh and it was certainly one of the things that could have ended our expedition very quickly. But we were able to spot it, treat it, and then manage it for the rest of the expedition without it getting worse. And I think it it, it really illustrates, you know, the the, the benefits of of us both being doctors and of of us having experienced these things and been in those environments before. The first time we spoke you detailed what the kinds of things were that you really miss on these sorts of expeditions where you're away for a period of time. I'm wondering what little luxury did you really enjoy first when you got back home? I remember when uh, we were speaking before and I was quite concerned about my lack of being able to drink tea for the course of the expedition, which is one of my great pleasures in life. (laughs) I certainly did miss it. It's funny, actually, it's it's the thing I was looking forward to most of having a really good brew when I got off the ice. But when we got into Chile at the end of the expedition, we had a bit of time there sort of built into the journey for for various logistical reasons and and a bit of recovery. But Chile universally uses UHT milk uh, and not what I would consider proper milk. And so it was a period of 10 days out of the expedition in civilization with fantastic quality tea. I was having to add this disgusting milk to it and it was real disappointment. So I had to wait till I got back to New Zealand before I had proper coffee and a proper cup of tea. So, but that was something I looked forward to through the whole, for the whole expedition. And for me, you know, the thing that I looked forward to most, the whole expedition was, um, was taking the kids swimming. It was just one of those things that it just kept me going. And I just thought, and we, and we, as soon as we got back to Chile, 
the kids were there and we went swimming and it was it was really nice. I didn't expect it to be uh, that. I thought it was going to be a burger and chips and a milkshake, but it was the kids that I that uh, I looked forward to seeing the most. And obviously, in all honesty, obviously the t- the tea was a as a little luxury. But you know, I spent. We had that one thing you do find when you're skiing along in Antarctica is you have a, an awful lot of time to just think. You have a lot of time in your own head. And, you know, I, I almost just started to create, you know, scenarios and kind of, you know, fantasies of just normal life. You know, I didn't, I didn't miss doing exciting things. I didn't miss doing sort of special stuff. I just missed normal mundane life with my family. And, you know, like with Gareth, uh, taking the kids swimming, I, I spent a lot of time just thinking about that moment that I was going to see my kids again. I knew they'd be going to meet me at the airport in Dunedin, New Zealand. I know what the airport looks like. I knew where they'd be standing when I got off the plane. And I imagined that moment over and over again in my head, a lot of the expedition. And so, you know, when I finally got home after, you know, a chunk of time in Chile and then traveling around again, and finally landed on the plane in Dunedin it was uh, it was pretty special as that as that scenario that I've been imagining in my head kind of played out in real life and it was you know every bit as wonderful as I was expecting it to be. That's really beautiful and of course everyone back home was so invested in your journey for other explorers maybe wanting to attempt the same trek and have the support that you both did what advice would you give to them? Surround yourself with positive like-minded people you know and and stick with it the support that we have had from grant thornton in particular and our other sponsors and our friends and our families has made a massive difference the the three years that we were really planning this particular expedition it was a real roller coaster it was a roller coaster of emotion and we really needed the support and rich and i are the guys on the ice but there's uh, there's my wife Andrea who was our team manager. There's there's Mark who was our expedition chairman. At every every step of the way, it's just all all positive, and it's something that we really have to be so thankful to Grant Thornton for. You know, and when we were on the ice, we knew that GT was sending out updates across you know across the country, and it, it really kept us going. I found that side of stuff made it made a really big difference actually. Going you know when we were out there, knowing that. There's just huge numbers of people out there, both with GT and, and with particularly with, with scouts as well, where there's huge numbers of scouts across Australia and New Zealand, you know, following us on our journey. It was a huge motivating factor as well. You know, it felt that there was this whole community of people behind us, even though, you know, very occasionally we'd manage to get some messages we'd get, we'd get through on the sat phone or be able to, to send through so we could read some of the support. But just knowing it was there was, was really important. And I think trying to stay positive all through that build-up and then when you're out on the ice. There's no such thing as an easy major Antarctic expedition. You know, the whole process of trying to get the sponsors and the money on board and all the planning is an enormous undertaking. And I don't think I've ever heard of an expedition that it's not come down to the wire and not been really difficult. And so that process is huge amounts of highs and lows even just getting onto the ice. And then, of course, when you're there, by far the single most important factor in determining determining your success is your mental resilience. And so having that community behind us, that wider community that's just out, that's on top of all of our family and, and friends was, was enormously important. So as Gareth says, just trying to, trying to stay positive in the face of what often times, both pre and on the ice itself, feels like everything is against you. What's next for the two of you? I imagine it's fairly hard to top what you've just achieved. So how can you put anything on the table that even comes close or do you not want to? Rich and I both have a list of 
a quite a long list of things that we want to do in the future. We'd love to we'd love to get back to Antarctica. There's plenty to be explored and it's such an incredible place. We would love to spend the next year or the years to come teaching our kids to to follow in our footsteps, um, take them on expeditions, and also to continue our work with with the scouts. We're talking to them at the moment about putting together a scouts expedition to the South Pole in the next few years. So I think our role as scouts ambassadors across Australia and New Zealand has been so very important to to inspire the next generation of of young leaders and young adventurers to go forward and, and do great things and also to do great things in terms of looking after our, our planet into the into the future. So hopefully lots of exciting stuff in the years to come. Uh, absolutely. And I think uh, in, in the meantime, I've got a I've got a quite a long list of chores that I need to get through. I've certainly got a little bit of uh, catching up to do. It's uh, it's my it's going to be my job to clean out the fish tank and, uh, and uh, take the dog for a walk for quite a few months yet before I'm allowed off on my next adventure. Well, Gareth and Richard, thank you so much for your time. And congratulations again to you both. Bob, the Grant Thornton named SLED and the whole of the Antarctica 2023 team on your amazing achievement. We're looking forward to speaking to you in person across some of the Grant Thornton Australia offices, of course. But until then, how can we continue to follow your future journeys? What's the best way for people to find you? Through our social media and our and our website, they'll they'll still be running. So it's Antarctica2023.com.au, and and everything will will go through there, and and you can get in touch with us through both those those channels as well. And yeah, and keep an eye on our website for we've got some really good photos to share and uh, and some more images and pictures to come. So we'll be getting out there uh, those out there over the next few weeks as soon as we can. If you liked this podcast and would like to hear more Remarkable stories, you can find, like and subscribe to the Remarkables podcast by Grant Thornton Australia on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Leave us a review or ideas on who you'd like to hear from next. I'm Rebecca Archer. Thank you for listening.